Are you guys ready for the word this morning? Let's go ahead and pray as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we study your word, that, that uh, our hearts would be open, our eyes would be open, our minds would be open to receive what you have for us this morning. Lord, I, I never want Sunday mornings to be just something that we do, uh, the, a spiritual checklist. But Lord, that every time that we come in, that we grow, that we learn, that we don't leave the same way we came in. So Father, this morning, I pray that that would be the case, that we would grow that our faith would increase, that our knowledge of you would increase, that our love would increase, and our revelation of you and who we are in you would increase as well. So we thank you for being with us this morning. Give me the words to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I'm going to grab a drink of water before I get started. But I do want to, uh, to let you guys know we're, we're just going to continue on in this idea of the culture of who we are. One of the things that can be very difficult when you're looking at churches is to know what they're really all about, what do they believe, what's important to them, what is the culture like in that church, and that's the whole reason why we started doing these series of messages every year, is we want to make sure that it's clear who we are, what we believe, what we want to accomplish, and that way everybody is kind of on the, the same page. And we've gone over the last several weeks talking about who we are as a church. We learned that we're a people that are saved by grace. We, we, we believe uh, that, that salvation is by grace and by grace alone. You can't earn it. You don't have to do anything for it. We also, just to, to counter that, we don't believe that, that you get saved by grace and you can do whatever you want. The truth is, is that, that we're supposed to be holy. We're supposed to live the life that God has called us to live. And when James talked about works, he says, show me your your faith uh, uh, w without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And the, the point there was that when you get born again, something happens and you, you change. You're not who you used to be, and your life looks different. It's not the works that saves you, but salvation by grace, that free salvation changes you, and your, your life looks a little bit different, amen? We learn that we're a people who worship. We're a people who pray. And today I want to focus on that, that here at Living with Family Church, we are a family. How many of you know that the body of Christ is a family? How many of you know that sometimes families are hard? <laughs> sometimes families are tough. You see, we're not just a group of like-minded people at the church. You see, when you, when you get into a group, if you ever join a club or a group of like-minded people, the thing about that is, is that you come together for, for what you have the same, and that's all you deal with. That's all you deal with is the common interest. But in a family, you get the good stuff, but you get the bad stuff sometimes too. And uh, I know in my own personal family, my sister and I have had some rough spots in our relationship. But the thing is, is that I love her unconditionally. And I know that, that if I needed her, I could reach out regardless of, of how things were on time, and she would be there for me, and vice versa. If she reached out to me, I would be there for her because we're family. And that's what families do. It's more than, than what happened last week. It's about being in that relationship. But being part of the family means we do need to be cognizant of that because here's the thing. I've noticed that People that you're closest to, you tend to be the rudest to. You tend to be the meanest to. Because you know that they love you, and you can kind of get away with it. You know that no matter, I think that's, we don't do it consciously. 
You know, that's, we, don't, we don't get rude or crazy with our spouses because, because we know they're going to be there. But that, I think that's the internal subconscious thinking is that we're like, you know, they're going to love me anyway so we can be a little more free. So I think as a family, when we talk about this, we need to recognize that it's important that we understand how we treat one another. It's important that we're mindful, that we respect and honor one another. And the truth is, is that we're going to tick each other off from time to time. If you've been here a while, you've probably seen it. I've probably upset you. You've probably upset me. We're going we're gonna to talk about it and get through it, though, because that's what families do. When we have issues, we talk about it. We move on. You see, when you join a club, if you don't like something that's going on, you just leave. But you don't just leave a family. In a family, you figure it out. You work through it. And our own personal responsibility is to take care of how we act. Because how many know that, that how to behave in the body of Christ is mentioned many, many times in the Bible. That's because it's important to God. How we behave with one another is important to God. And like I said, we just need to, to make sure that we're cognizant of the fact that just because we're close to people, we don't act a little crazy and end up hurting relationships, truthfully, even unintentionally. Because one thing I've noticed in the body of Christ is that we tend to hold other Christians to a very high standard. Turns out it's a way higher standard than we hold ourselves to. You ever notice that? Especially see this with, with, with uh, uh, young Christians, immature Christians. They get saved and they finally get their eyes open to stuff. And next thing you know, they're pointing out everybody's failures, forgetting that it was five minutes ago, that that's where they were. We tend to do that. You know, there was a book written by Dwight Carlson it was called, Why Do Christians Shoot Their Wounded? He said, you know, the, the Christian army is the only army where they shoot their wounded. Every other army in the world pulls their wounded out. And we have to be careful that we're not doing that very thing. We have to be cognizant of how we deal with one another because the truth is that how we interact with one another impacts how effective we are in this world. Amen. So let's go ahead and get started. I actually got a, a lot of stuff to get through. Um, so we're going to start in Matthew 10, 40 through 41. It says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. One of the first things I want to talk about when we start talking about relationships and the body of Christ is understanding how we receive people impacts the, the effect that they can have on our lives. It impacts how that they can minister into our lives. It actually, how you receive somebody determines what you can receive from somebody, amen? But let me explain it like this to make it really simple. Say you have an issue in your house. The sink is leaking. Water's pouring out everywhere. Who do you call? A plumber, right? You call the plumber, you receive him as a plumber, and you get some plumber work for him. Marianne's pointing out, unless you're Jim, apparently you just do all the work yourself. <laughs> you see, when you, when you need a plumber, you receive the plumber as a plumber. Now, what if you called the AC repairman and received him as a plumber? What would happen? You would have some issues. You're not going to receive what you're hoping for because you didn't receive the AC repairman as an AC repairman, that's what he is. The truth is, is that how we receive one another is going to impact how we 
what we receive from one another. And I, I know this is important in my own life because when I was younger, I went to a church and my best friend's dad was the pastor and I was young and arrogant. I know you guys can't imagine me as young and arrogant, but I wasn't always a pastor. So I was sitting there and I, I'm, I thought I was so clever because I was going to make sure that I only called him Brent and not Pastor Brent. I just called him by his name because, you know, if you read the Bible with an immature attitude, you, you see that we're, we're all equal, we're all the same, and I was and I was going to show them that we're the same. And I realized all those years I was missing out because I never received him as my pastor. I always saw him as just Brent, somehow my equal. When I, I missed out on everything that I could have learned from him, if I would have actually received him, I was supposed to receive him. People have always asked me, do, you know, do I have to call you Pastor Wayne? No, you don't have to call me. You can call me whatever you want. But how we address people is indicative, in, in, indicative, indicative, that's how you pronounce that word. It's indicative of how we receive them. And I, I know this because it was true in my life. And it's not just true for the leaders in the church. I mean, there's a lot of leaders in the church that we need to honor and respect them for who they are and what they're doing in the church. Because if we decide that somebody else isn't, uh, worthy to speak to us, to pray with us, to pray for us. You know how many people will only get prayer from a pastor? And thank God it's not a big deal in this church, but there are some churches where the people only get prayer from the pastor and don't realize that every single person in that church has the authority to pray for people, has the authority to lay their hands on the sick, has the authority to see miracles get done because they're not doing it in their own power, but in the power of Christ. And because we have this idea that only certain people can do certain things, we miss out on so much. The truth is, is that we need to receive each other as God sees us. Amen? And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 <clears throat> through 15, it says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, that the same thing twice in a row? Nope. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle and encourage the fainthearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The truth is, is that we all need to honor one another as co-laborers in the body of Christ. The truth is, is that we've all been called to the same great commission to spread the gospel, to share the love of Jesus Christ with the world. Ultimately, that is our, our, our number one goal for every single person in this church is to see the kingdom of heaven increase as people give their lives to the Lord. We all have the same goal, and as such, we should respect each other and honor each other as co-laborers. He said, respect those who labor among you. We have to realize that we're, we're in the same army. We have the same mission. And we don't need to be pushing other people down so that we can be elevated. Or we don't need to be to pushing people away because of, of, of who they are, what they look like, where their background comes from. You know, if you go and look at our website, and one of the things that it says is that, that uh, here at Living Hope Family Church, we're a family. We don't care where you're from, what you do for a living, what you look like, how many tattoos you have, or who you voted for. You're welcome here at this church. The problem is, is that 
that can lead to a lot of different backgrounds and ideas in a church. And we have to be careful that we remember that, that we're not who we voted for. We're not how many tattoos we are. We're not where we're from, what kind of job we are, whether we're rich or we're poor, but we're here in the body of Christ to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And we need to treat each other like that. We actually need to appreciate one another and not just get along. Because you know what? That person that you're looking at, that you're struggling with, Jesus loved them so much that he gave his life for them. We would do well to remember that. You know, we've, in our jobs, anybody ever had a person that we, we just grin and bear it with? We, do, we work with them, we, do, we don't have any, any desire to mend the relationship, we just deal with what we have to. It shouldn't be like that in the body of Christ. We should be working at at having love and respect for one another and, 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 and building that relationship. And everything that we, should do, we do should be out of love for one another. We should be reminding ourselves that we love one another. Oh, Pastor Wayne, I'm not a loving person. Well, that changed when you became born again. And we'll talk about that in a second. But, but whether that wasn't who you were, that's who you are now. Start living out who you are now and love one another. As members of the body of Christ, we should be striving for more than what you would deal with at your workplace. But instead, we should be working at just esteeming one another, lifting one another up. And everything that we should do should be out of love. Even the admonition He says right here that uh, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. You know, the truth is, is that people that love one another, we encourage one another, we admonish one another. Admonish doesn't mean to point out failures and tell people how, how bad they are. It's to encourage them, to remind them of their duty and to encourage them and, and truthfully remind them of who they are. If somebody's falling, we don't point out their failures, we remind them of who they are in Christ. That's not, who you, that's, that's not who you are. This is who you are now. We encourage them. We build them up. We don't try to condemn them and kick them out, amen? Because people are going to fail. People are going to make mistakes. And the truth is, is, is we're going to have issues. What do we do with it from then? Do we encourage one another? Do we admonish one another? Do we try to push each other to greatness? Or we just run away or kick people out. That's not what the body of Christ should look like. But we should instead seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 2 Corinthians 12, 25-26 says that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You know, it's, it's interesting that how different the body of Christ is supposed to look like than the rest of the world. You work at a job place and somebody gets a promotion, and just as often as somebody would be excited, somebody would say, that should have been for me. They, they shouldn't have got that promotion. I should have got that. But the attitude in the body of Christ should be different. We should be rejoicing with other people. Instead of pointing out, man, why did that person get to do this and I don't get to do this? Why does God want that person to do this and I don't get to do this? Why does, you know, we have all these things where we think of, and it's really easy to get in that trap. Why, it's really easy when I have to take every thought captive in my own life going, why is it the church around the corner is growing so much faster than our church, God? Why is it that this is happening? It's really easy to get into that trap. 
But we should remind ourselves that we should be rejoicing with other people. Instead of, you know, talking about, from my perspective, from a, from a church level, instead of looking at another church that's growing and being envious, I, 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 paint, not paint, I uh, make the point to be excited with them, to thank God for what is going on, because the truth is, they have the same goal as me. So when the, the kingdom of heaven is increased in another church, I still win, because we're on the same team. I don't know what's going on with my tablet today. It keeps shutting off. Hallelujah. The reality is, is that in the church, we should be rejoicing when other people are being blessed. You know, if you've been struggling to have a baby and somebody else gets pregnant, we shouldn't be envious, but we should rejoice with that as well. And then thank God that He's going to do the same for you, but we don't, we got to make sure that we're not looking down on others because. Uh, we think things should turn out a different way. We should rejoice when others get promoted, when they have blessing, when they have financial blessing in their life, when they have babies. All of those things, we should be rejoicing with one another, not being envious of one another. And the same is true if one person suffers. We should all suffer together. You know, when someone's going through something tough, the, the attitude that we should take is not better you than me. The truth is, is that, that families, we hurt alongside one another. And we, we come alongside one another, support and encourage one another. You know, Jesus set the example with Lazarus. One of the, the greatest stories in the Bible, which has one of the shortest verses in the Bible, where it just says, he wept. And that's interesting to me because Jesus didn't all of a sudden have an epiphany and decide he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That was the plan from the beginning. Matter of fact, he stayed longer just to make sure that everybody knew Lazarus was good and dead. You know, the King James uh, Version, his sister said, he stinketh, Lord. He'd been dead a while. And Jesus came, and before he raised him, it says he wept. What a weird thing. Why did Jesus weep? Because his friends and his family were weeping. He suffered a lot. He knew what he was going to do. He knew what the outcome was going to be. But it still hurt him to see the people that he loved hurting. And that's what we should be doing in the body of Christ as well. Rejoicing alongside one another and hurting alongside one another. Paul taught this to the, to the Roman church as well. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We should operate as one unit. Because the truth is, is that when one of us do well, the whole body does well. And when one of us hurts, the whole body hurts. And if somebody is hurting, we want to come alongside them. We don't just cut people off. We don't just push people out. But instead, we encourage one another to get through those difficult times. I mean, could you imagine if you stubbed your toe and to fix it, you cut off your entire leg? wouldn't make any sense, so we shouldn't do that in the body of Christ either. Amen? Then in John 13, 34-35, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. But also, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We should be identifiable by our love for one another. 
It should be such a part of our culture, a part of who we are, that when people see us, they should know that we're Christians because of how we live and how we love one another. When I was in the army, when I was in basic training, one of the things that they told us is that if you ever get deployed overseas, you still have to be careful when you're going out on the economy because even if you're in civvies, even if you're in regular clothes, you're not in your uniform, everybody there will still know that you're in the military. Everyone will still know because they can see it in who you are. They can see it in your haircut. They can see it in how you stand. They can see it in how you walk. You just spent several months being taught how to march. And for the longest time, when I walked, when, when you're marching in the military, they teach you, you always hold your hand like this, your thumb on your hand, and, and that's how you march. Everybody's hand is the same. And, and even after I got out, I'll catch myself when I'm walking. That's how my hands naturally form. All that stuff, because that became ingrained in who I was. The, the military culture and the military life became ingrained in who I was, and, and I didn't have to be in uniform back then for people to tell that I was in the military. It's a little bit different now. It turns out you put on a little bit of weight, you can hide a lot of stuff. But uh, back then, you know, people could tell that I was in the military because of how I cut my hair, how I walked, how I talked, the words that I used, the things that I said. And the same should be true for the body of Christ. People should be able to tell who you are by, by how you walk and how you talk, how you interact with others, how you deal with yourself inside the body of Christ, and even how you deal with people outside the body of Christ. The problem is, is that so many people now can tell people are Christians because they're hypocritical and they just talk everybody down while doing all the same stuff that they're talking bad about other people for doing. But the truth is that they should be able to tell us by how we love one another, how we interact with one another. When somebody is hurting, we don't push them down, we lift them up. When somebody is, is walking in sin, we don't tell them how awful they are and that they're a failure, but instead we remind them that they are more than that because Christ has changed who they are. They're no longer who they used to be. How we act, how we behave is different. And the truth is, is that love is the very nature of God. 1 John 4, 8, it says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. When we act without love, what we're demonstrating to those looking around is that we don't know God. You know, and this is a hard statement to hear. If, if you don't love, you don't know God. And, and people will get offended by that or people will get upset. But the truth is, is that I didn't say it. We just went through the, the series of of uh, first john we got all through that and and the truth is is you read that at a on a on a surface level and it's like oh this is a great chapter it's all about god's love but if you actually sit down and, and dive into it and study it most of the chapter is john telling people if you act like this you don't know god if you act without love you don't know god the truth is is that when god is inside of you when jesus christ is inside of you you change you're not who you used to be and how you love how you live is different and naturally you'll love people because of the love that he had for you it changes how you live your life it changes who you are and when people see us love that's demo that's uh, demonstrable of, of god living inside of us He says that we're to love one another. Jesus said this, John 15, 12 through 13, this is my commandment 
that you want love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This wasn't Jesus' good idea. This wasn't Jesus' good advice. It was his commandment that we love one another. And just in case people were confused about what that meant, what it means to love one another, he continues and says, greater love has no one other than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He says, love them like I loved you. And he demonstrated his love for us by giving his life for us. So when you're looking at the people that you're in relationship and you're wondering, when do I give up? When do I stop? When do I stop loving? If you haven't given up your life for them, you still got more room to go. That's the kind of love that we're supposed to have for one another. The problem is, is that we live in a society where the word love is so overused that it's almost uh, uh, unrecognizable. We use it so flippantly. The truth is, every single one of us does it. I love pizza. I love ice cream. I love my car. I wouldn't give my life for pizza. I ain't tasted a pizza that good. Wouldn't give my life for my car. The truth is, is the kind of love that we're talking about here is, is something bigger than the way we use it every single day. When we love one another, the Bible says, Jesus says it's equivalent to, to being willing to give up your life for somebody else. This is the, the agape love that the Bible talks about. It's a self-sacrificing love. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, used agape to describe what he believed was the highest level of love known to humanity. A selfless love, a love that was passionately committed to the well-being of the other. A self-sacrificial love. This means that, that in the body of Christ, we should be willing to give up stuff that's our own. We should be able to... to to have stuff that costs us to show love to one another. And it shows up in, in little ways, right? We sacrifice. If someone needs help moving, you sacrifice your weekend to go help them move. If somebody is, is hurting in the hospital, you sacrifice some time to go visit them in the hospital to encourage them, to lift them up. We're supposed to be there for one another. If somebody needs someone to pray with and someone to talk with, then, then you, you give up some time to be on the phone with them or to visit them and pray with them. That's how we show love to one. That's a sacrificial love. The good news is, is you probably don't have to give up your life to demonstrate it. But you should be willing to. That's the kind of love that we're called to have in the body of Christ. And I know it's not hard. Or it's not hard. It's not easy. It is hard. Sometimes it's hard to love people. Especially people that, that act in unlovable ways. But the truth is, is that we should. Colossians 3, 12 through 16, I want to talk to you about uh, uh, three reasons why we should love one another. And there's three primary reasons that we should. And the first is, is because of who Jesus is. The second is because of who we are. 
And the third is because who they are. These are the three reasons that we should love one another. In Colossians 3, 12 through 16, it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has to complain against another, forgiving each other. Why? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You know, we love one another because he loved us. The primary reason that we should love one another is because, because of who Jesus was, because Jesus loved him. The reality is, is that, that it, if before you were saved, you, had, you struggled in this area of your life, the truth is you've been changed, you've been made brand new, and, and if Jesus loved them like that, you now have Jesus inside of you. The, the old man is dead and gone, the, spirit, the old spirit was removed, the new spirit was placed inside of you, which is the spirit of Christ, which means that you can live just like him, and you can love like he loved and the truth is, if we understand everything that he did for us, then naturally, the natural response out of that is to love like he did, to forgive like he forgave. You remember that's the, the parable that Jesus told about the, the, the slave that owed money to the king and, and uh, uh, he was forgiven that massive amount of debt and then he went after the slave that owed him some money. The whole point of that parable was to show that that. The, the, the original slave didn't really understand the forgiveness that he was given. There was, there was a misunderstanding of what was happening. For some reason, he probably thought that this was just temporary. One day he's going to come back at me for everything I owe, so I have to get everything that I'm owed so I can be ready to pay. He didn't understand that he was really forgiven. Because the truth is, if we understood the depth of what we would forgiven, then we would want to extend that to every single person that we know. Because of the forgiveness he's shown us, because of the love that he's shown us, then we want to do these things. We want to be uh, compassionate. We want to be kind, have humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. That means sometimes it's going to be tough. You don't ever bear something if it's easy. You don't ever bear something if there's no difficulty involved. And when we're talking about people, that means personality clashes. That means sometimes we mistreat each other, almost always unintentionally. But the truth is, is that it's so easy to get offended. And I don't know about you guys, have you ever had something happen where uh, somebody didn't return a phone call or you said something or they said something to you that you misunderstood and then you start running through all the scenarios in your head about what could be going on? You know, we have to be so careful of that stuff because we, we, we offend one another without ever intentionally doing it. Sometimes we just have to bear it and extend forgiveness, extend love. And for heaven's sake, if you are offended, talk to somebody about it. That's the number one thing you can do to get through it. Because you have two choices. You can get offended and run away, or you can go and talk to the person about it, and let's work through it. Every time that I've done that, it turns out that none of the scenarios that I imagined in my head actually came to pass. And it was usually minor understandings. Or sometimes I found out that I had hurt somebody and I just apologized. And I do my best not to do it again. I repent and try not to do it again. 
But the truth is, sometimes we have to bear with one another. And the only way you can do that is with Christ. Amen? The other reason we should love one another is because of who they are. In Colossians 5, where am I at? Sorry, because of who you are. Colossians 3, 8 through 10 says, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The other reason we should love one another is because of who we are. I mentioned it multiple times already, but the truth is you're not who you used to be before you were born again. And sometimes we try to slip back in that old behavior. Anybody ever try to slip back into that old behavior? Just me? I have to remind myself to put on the new self. That's what Paul said. You have to put on the new self. Sometimes we forget and we try to slip back into those old ways, but the reality is, is that we've been made brand new. We need to put away all that, that crazy stuff. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. We make sure that we're not lying to one another. You see, all these things are the opposite of what someone who loves somebody would do. But if we're reminded to put on the new self, because who we are, we're changed. We're not who we used to be. This is the, the reason why we love. If, if you don't get anything else, understand that when you're born again, you are changed. It's not a simple uh, decision on your part to live better. A supernatural miracle takes place. The old Jew is removed. The old heart of stone is removed. And a heart of flesh is put in. You have a new spirit put inside of you. It is genuinely a miracle. And because of that, you are different. You are changed. And you are able to live the life that God called you to live. You're able to love like he called you to love. You see, all of these things right here, these are destructive to relationships. These destroy families. They destroy relationships. They destroy churches. And we have to be careful. Lying. It says, see that you don't lie to one another. Lying is one of the most destructive things that I've ever seen. I've seen marriages fail because people lie to one another. It ends up being worse than the actual initial offense. Lying will destroy relationships. It will destroy, and not just marital relationships, it will destroy relationships with your parents, with your kids, with your friends, inside the church. It will destroy relationships at your work. All these things are who you used to be. Put them off. Put on the new self. Live from that new self. And that new self is loving. And then finally, probably one of the greatest reasons to love people is because of who they are. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. When we look at people, we shouldn't see them as they are. We should see them as Christ made them. I just told you that when you're born again, a miracle takes place inside of you. Well, guess what? When somebody you know is born again, a miracle takes place inside of them too. They're not who they used to be. But the problem is, is that when we evaluate people, when we evaluate other people, we tend to evaluate them at their worst. But when we evaluate ourselves, we tend to evaluate ourselves at our best. You ever notice that? 
you know, when you're looking at other people and, and you see people, they can't forgive them or for whatever reason because it's one terrible thing happened in their life and they ignore all the other stuff. But when you had something terrible happen in your life, you want people to think about the other stuff and not just judge you on that one moment. That's what we tend to do. We tend to judge others on their, their worst and we judge ourselves on our best. But we need to remember that we weren't always models of spiritual and moral excellence. That we also have had our problems, our difficulties. And we also need to recognize that a person's value has nothing to do with the deeds that they've done in their life. And I thank God for that. A person's value, anything's value really, is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. I don't know if you guys noticed, but the housing market in our area has gone crazy. Went on Zillow the other day and was looking at what my house is worth, and just in the last year, year and a half, my house has gone up $100,000, over $100,000. Maybe right at 100000 In the last year. You want to know why my house has gone up that higher? My house didn't change. My house is the same house that it was when I moved in, when I bought it. So you want to know why it's worth more? Because people are willing to pay more for it now. We have people coming in from California. They're selling their houses, which are way more expensive than they are here. So they have a bunch of extra cash, and they're just offering you know, $10,000, $20,000 over people's asking price in the neighborhood. And as they keep doing that over and over and over, it's driving the prices of houses up because people are willing to pay more for them. It turns out my house is, is value is solely determined not by the materials that are in it, not by how much it would cost to build a new one, but based on what somebody is willing to pay for it. Turns out that you're valued like that too. And Jesus was willing to pay his life for you. So your value has nothing to do with the things that you've done. It has nothing to do with the way you look, where you work, any of your failures or any of your successes. It has everything to do with, with Jesus was willing to give his life for yours. That was the price that he was willing to pay. And we would do well to remember that when we look at other people, even if they're struggling, even if they're hurting, that Jesus was willing to give his life for them. That's how much they're worth. So we need to make sure that we're not evaluating one another on our highs or our lows, but rather evaluating one another in how Christ sees us. Like Paul said, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. But instead, we regard them as Jesus Christ sees them. Amen? So the reality is that if we love each other like this, this plays out in certain ways that we behave. Luke 17, 3-4 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is an interesting one. It's a hard one many people deal with. People struggle with this one all the time. Because it doesn't say, if he comes to you seven times saying, I repent, you should forgive him. It says you must forgive him. Sometimes forgiveness is tough. The reality is, is that when, when people are struggling, there's no amount of times that we should forgive, forgive them. There's no set amount of times we should never stop forgiving them. As long as they're repenting and asking for forgiveness, we should continue to forgive them. And this is a difficult one. 
This is what Matthew 18, 21 through 22 says. And Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Seven times 70 is is the way some other ones translate it. Either way, it becomes a lot of times that we're supposed to forgive them. You see, in the Jewish culture, forgiveness was limited to three times. Somebody could do something against you three times, and you had to forgive them three times, but after that, you didn't have to forgive them. It's likely that Peter was coming up trying to uh, demonstrate his moral superiority by saying, well, I won't just say three times. How many should I forgive Jesus? Seven times? And Jesus says, "Now nah, you still don't have it. The reality is what Jesus was trying to say is that as long as they keep coming back to you, you keep forgiving them. That's what it looks like in our lives to love one another unconditionally. And if that's you, if you're the one that's falling, there's something you need to notice too. It says that you should repent. You know, it's, it's for your own personal sake, I think you should forgive people even if they don't repent. Because not forgiving just hurts you. It doesn't hurt them, especially if they're not repentant. They don't care if you forgive them or not. It's not hurting them any one bit, no matter how mad you are. Forgiveness is about you. Forgiveness is about recognizing what Christ has done in you. But if you're someone who is failing, that is struggling, repent. And the idea of repenting is to turn away from whatever it is that you were looking at, that's the, that failure, whatever it is, and put your eyes back on God. That's important. If you want people to forgive you, you need to repent. And the other thing that I'll bring up just briefly for those of us who have had to forgive sometimes horrific things. One, forgiveness doesn't mean you're saying that whatever happened is okay. That's not what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness is not approval. And two, if something bad is going on, you can forgive and still not enter into the same situation that you were in previously. Forgiveness does not mean you have to go back to that situation where you got hurt in the first place. Amen? Forgiveness is not about you being abused over and over and over again. Forgiveness is about you extending the the same forgiveness that God forgave to you for your own personal well-being. But it doesn't mean to get hurt. And it doesn't mean it's okay, just to be clear. But we are supposed to forgive. Forgive. And the truth is, if you'll forgive, you'll see your own healing accelerate instead of just be stagnant where you were in unforgiveness. Galatians 6.1.2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Once again, and we're going to kind of go through a lot of scriptures here at the end really fast because I want to touch a lot of things. But the reality is, is that we're supposed to, to, to lift up those who are hurting, to restore those who are hurting and not cast them out. You know, our, our initial, initial response to people that are struggling, that are people are dealing with sin of any kind, is not to kick them out, but instead it's to help restore them to where they need to be, to remind them of who they are in Christ. And it says we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. That means sometimes it's hard. Sometimes that means being there for them when you need them. Sometimes it, it, it can play out in many different ways, but it may not be easy for us to help restore people, but that is what we're called to do. And then finally it says that we need to be careful, though. 
when we're doing these things. He says, keep watching yourself lest you too be tempted. There was a story I heard once about a man who, who uh, had never dealt with pornography in his entire life. He never looked at it, never seen it once. And he was in a church, and he saw that there were a lot of men that were struggling with it. So he thought, you know what? I've never dealt with this. I can be there for them. I can help them. And he started a group to help these men who were struggling with pornography. And as he was listening to all the things that these men were just talking about and how it impacted them and, and the, the, the hold it had on their lives, after a little while he said, you know what, I just don't understand what they're going through. I can't relate. I'm just going to go ahead and take a look at it so I can understand what they're doing. And it ended up being that he got disastrously addicted to pornography because he wasn't careful. He didn't keep watch on himself. You know, sometimes we need to be there for people that are struggling, but if you are an alcoholic, you probably don't want to be the one that's walking alongside the person that's struggling with alcohol. That's not the place for you. There are other people that can do that. So we do have to, we want to restore one another, but we need to be careful. Amen? And then next in five, Matthew 5, 23 through 24, it says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know, having an issue with your brother impacts both of you. And this is an interesting situation because most of us, if we read it too fast, we hear if you're at the altar and you have a problem with your brother, go and fix it. But that's not what it says. It says if you're at the altar, if your brother has a problem with you, go to him and make it right. You know, if you're aware of somebody that's upset at you, that, is, that, that, that uh, you've offended, even if you don't think that you should have offended, like I didn't, you can believe that you didn't do anything that was offense-worthy, but if they're upset at you, if they, if they have been offended by you, you should deal with that. Go talk to them. Figure out what's going on. The truth is, every single one of us in this body, if we have a problem with one another, we should be talking about it and dealing with it, because when you let it fester, when you let it build up, that's when there are problems. And that goes for anybody, and there's nobody that's left out of it. If there's anybody that, that, that has a problem with me, I would encourage you, come talk to me about it, because that's the last thing that I want is to hurt people. But I realize that there will be times that I will, but I'll never do it intentionally, and I want to deal with those situations. And if that ever happens to you, if somebody comes to you and, and they have a problem, and, and you realize, you don't think that, that you did anything wrong, but they were upset, you know what, just apologize. And don't do that fake apology. Anybody ever heard that fake apology? I'm sorry if you were offended. They were offended. You don't have to say that. Just say sorry for offending them, even if you don't believe that you did anything wrong. Because the truth is that they were hurt. And that's what acting in love looks like. I would rather apologize for something that I might not necessarily think I did wrong, but knowing that it hurts somebody to restore a relationship than to deal with some sort of pride, like there's no way I'm apologizing for that. It doesn't get you anywhere. So if you know somebody has something against you, go get it dealt with. Talk to them about it. Amen? First Thessalonians 5.11, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. One of the things that we should all be doing is encouraging one another. It's one of the reasons that we have the men's meetings and the women's meetings it's one of the reasons why I encourage you guys to get together outside of the church 
Because we should have relationships. We should be building one another up. We should be encouraging one another. Because that's what families do. If you only ever see people on a Sunday morning, you're never going to have any real relationship with them. You're never going to be able to speak into one another's lives because truthfully, whether you'll admit it or not, you don't really trust one another because you don't have any kind of relationship. We need to have relationships. We need to get together so we can build one another up, so we can encourage one another. It says encourage one another and build one another up. And the whole purpose of this, if you remember this, uh, this the 1 Thessalonians 5 is actually discussing Christ's return. It says he's coming back like a thief in the night. Church, we've talked about this before. We need to be ready. I don't know when it's going to be. It could be tomorrow. It could be another 2,000 years. But we need to be ready now. And that's how we do it, by walking alongside one another, by encouraging one another, by not letting ourselves get caught in the traps of the enemy, by being offended and lying and and slandering and gossiping about one another. Instead, we walk alongside each other in love and encouraging one another. Amen? And sometimes, like I said, that's hard. Galatians 6, 9 through 10, he says, Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are the household of faith. When I read scriptures like this, I'm always drawn to some things. And the first thing is he says, let us not grow weary of doing good. Now why would he put that there if it wasn't possible to be able to grow weary of doing good? Anybody ever grown weary of doing good? That's actually the reason why so many people in the world fall to, doing, to, to sin and fall to doing bad because it's a lot easier to just care about yourself. It's a lot easier to turn to, to drugs than it is to turn to God. It's a lot easier to turn to all manner of things to find fulfillment than it is to do the right thing many times. But he says don't grow weary of doing good, which tells me that sometimes you're going to be wearied doing good. Sometimes it's going to be hard. Sometimes when you're, when you're, you're forgiving that person for the, for the fifth time, you're going to be weary. I know I've been there. It's like, man, why, why can't you just get, get your head on straight and do this right? Why does this keep happening? But the truth is we have to be patient. We have to be, be careful that we don't grow so weary of doing good with people that we give up. Because that's easy to do. So he says, don't worry of good, doing good. Why? Because in due season, we will reap. You know the only time that you're not going to reap? If you grow weary of doing good and give up. When you give up, that's when you lose the harvest. When you give up, that's when you're not able to reap what God wants you to reap. And he says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially the household of faith. As Christians, we're supposed to do good to everyone. We should pay particularly, uh, a particular importance to the people around us in the body of Christ. Amen? And then we'll go ahead and end here. 1 Peter 4, 8-9. through 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter says, don't stop loving, ever. In case you thought it was just Paul's idea that we should love one another, now we've got Peter preaching the same thing. And he wouldn't tell us 
that we have to keep loving. Remember the way I think about stuff? Why would he tell us to keep loving earnestly? Because it's possible to stop. If we're not diligent, if we're not careful, it's possible that we would let it go by the wayside and that would be a detriment to yourself and to the body of Christ. Amen? And then he says, keep love on one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, this is one that initially always confused me. How is my love going to cover a multitude of sins? I've been taught my entire life that what Jesus did on the cross was enough. What Jesus did covers everybody's sin. So this always confused me. I'm like, what, what does it have to do with me? But the reality is, is this has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation, sins as far as, as people's standing with God has been dealt with in Jesus Christ. So if that's the case, how does my love cover a multitude of sins? The reality is, is that people are going to sin against you. People are going to do dumb stuff. But if you love them, you'll be able to get through it. You'll be able to extend forgiveness. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about relationships. You see, if you'll extend love to one another, when people do dumb things, you can get through it. You can, you can deal with it. And the reality is, is that we all need to recognize that we're all going to do dumb things from time to time. And if we want relationships to withstand, if we want, if we want to, to not have this all fall apart around us and we need to to act in love and forgive and move forward that's how you cover a multitude of sins by loving one another to get through all the nonsense that we're going to have to get through and this isn't something new any of you that did have a biological family know that that things are tough and if you don't love one another you just tear apart and the same thing will happen in the church so church we just have to remember to love one another, to deal with the things that come up, to repent and ask forgiveness, to move forward. And the reality is, is that if we'll do these things, then our relationships will be strengthened and the church will be strengthened. And just in case you, you didn't know all this advice, it doesn't just apply to the church. This applies to your marriage. This applies to your to a relationship with your parents or your kids, your friends, your co-workers. The reality is, is that if we will just treat one another as more important than ourselves, 99% of the problems this world faced would just go away. But the problem is, is most of us consider ourselves more important than anybody else. Even in the church. The truth is, is that you have to put on the new self to not walk in that old nature. So church, I would encourage you. Let's make sure that that's who we are as a church, that we love one another. Let's make sure that that's the culture that we're fostering here. That when people come in, they're welcomed and they feel love. And when people have been here a while, they still continue to feel that love, even in the midst of difficulties and struggles. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head.